Thanks for joining us for our series on the gospel and its ramifications for church life. These messages work through the heart of the gospel within the overall story of God and then deal with several outcomes of this good news in Jesus. How he creates a new people for God by his spirit, defines and upholds their identity through baptism and communion, and sends them as ministers of reconciliation to the world as foretastes of God's coming kingdom. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in him. Good morning. Let's turn to Matthew 28. Welcome to those who are, of course, members in part of Cornerstone and those who are visiting with us. Uh, my parents are here visiting as well and so many others that maybe not know everyone. Uh, Afton said to me yesterday, spending time with her grandparents, she goes, Daddy, I just realized it. You look a lot like Pop-Pop, except he has a lot of wrinkles. You know, so <laughs> he's like, one day, she said then, she's like, I think one day you'll get those wrinkles too. <laughs> So, uh, if you're from out of town, we are welcoming you to be enjoying this time together. Um, thanks for joining us. Let's turn to Matthew 28, 16 through 20. We'll read and then we'll pray together. Verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you are God alone. We praise you together. We come to you this morning, we ask for your help, recognizing that we're insufficient, and our sin is against you. Now this morning we've read scripture and we've sung songs together and we've prayed prayers all with the desire that we would kind of be reoriented to the truths that are found in your word. And we want to be corrected and we want to be instructed. We want to be encouraged and strengthened. And we know that these things happen by the Holy Spirit's work through the preaching of the word, both in song and prayer and reading and the preaching of the word. So, we ask you as we open up the word together, you would now give us eyes to see and you would have your way in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may have heard um, an illustration Jordan gave a story he told a few weeks ago, um, but I think it's worth repeating here. Jordan was beginning a uh, model car with his son, Jake, and they were working on it together. Uh, and Jordan was teaching him as he does and teaching and teaching and instructing and instructing Jake and in all the different intricacies and details of how this thing is supposed to go together so that at the end it'd have a beautiful model car. Uh, properly put together, making sure each detail is done properly so that they can get to the end, they would have a beautiful car. And as time went on, as they're working on it together, the car is starting to take shape. Jake is starting to get excited and he's starting to see what this thing is going to kind of look like as an end result. And as Jordan is continuing to explain and make sure that he understands all the intricate pieces and as they put the wheels and all the pieces together, Jake interrupts and finally is like, and then what? What, what happens here with this thing? What, what does it do at the end, Dad? What do, we, what do we do with this once we're done? Um, and of course, if, if you know anything about models, 
Like, there's two things that are cool about models. It's like building them is really cool, and then they sit on a shelf behind glass and look beautiful. That's kind of the point of the model. Like, I had a lot of, growing up, there's a couple people I can remember going to their house, and they were like, don't touch those things. That was very important, like we, we saw it. So Jake's question is realistic. Like, what are we supposed to do with this thing once it's done? And his attitude and question is a very helpful example for us. Over the past few weeks, we've been considering the gospel and its ramifications for church life. We've talked about what it does to us, who it makes us. And we've taken a lot of time to put all these pieces together and understand who we are as people saved by Jesus Christ and put together into his body. But I think it's a helpful question that Jake asks here. Is that it? Is is it supposed to do anything after we get it all together? Is our purpose only to kind of look good sitting on the shelf to highlight the magnificent design and the ability of the Redeemer and Creator to do this thing? Or is there more? Is it possible that the church is supposed to do something? We spent many weeks in this series already, and we've kind of come to a, this is our last one. Some of you rejoice, I know. Uh, We're starting Ephesians next week. I actually rejoice. I can't wait to get back into a book and be in the same book over and over again. Um, But we're kind of closing out this series. We began with understanding the gospel, understanding how a person ought to relate to God, understanding who he is as righteous, perfect God who made us and who we are all accountable to. We understand, though, in sin, we have all rebelled against this creator. And because of that, there must be an answer for sin. He cannot clear the guilty. But we know the third beautiful thing in the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to take that punishment so that you and I, through faith, would not have to take that punishment. And that obviously brings us to the fourth thing, which is to respond in faith. Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So this is the gospel that we talked about, specifically responding in repentance and faith. Then we took the next week to, to move on to baptism, Christian baptism, which is the initial oath sign of the new covenant. It is the way that we together, as a body of Christ, proclaim to the world that a person has actually been baptized into Christ, that that's what's really happened. It makes our commitment to Christ and his body real and understands that it's done by a group of people actually baptizing this one, saying, this one is Christ's, that this person has union with him in the waters of baptism, in the real baptism of the Holy Spirit. And now they are part of the living, breathing church of Christ. Well, we then work through the importance of local church membership, especially in a world where true identity and commitment have been neglected or at least are misunderstood. And truthfully, church membership is the working out of baptism in a real context. It makes our commitment to Christ and his body real and tangible with a real group of people, real Christians, all submitting to Christ and willing to submit to one another and to care for each other. In Ephesians 4, we jump to see that every member of the body is to be a minister. Not only me, not only Jordan or the other elders, we're not the only ones that are the ministers, but Ephesians 4 shows us it's not just the pastors. It's God's design to use shepherds to equip the body, but that all of us are responsible to minister for the building up and edification of the body in love. At the beginning of January, we spent two weeks on Christian community. First week, we took a little time to kind of tear down some unbiblical expectations and ideas of what we kind of think is community. And the second week, we took to build the proper definition as Jesus shows us what true Christian community is. Love. It is 
loving your brother or sister like Jesus loved his disciples. And we understand that we desire to love one another, to regularly do one another spiritual good. Out of this, we moved on, though, to talk about how we respond when a body experiences sin in a life that's not submitted to Christ. We talked about church discipline and how we ought to confront one another when we notice sin in another brother's life. This was for the sake, again, the purity of Christ's church, for the sake of restoring a wandering brother, and for the building up of the body in love. All those things point back to, the, to Jesus Christ as head and for building it up. We talked then about the keys of the kingdom in Matthew 16 and how Peter's declaration that Jesus of Nazareth was actually the Messiah was the gospel message and that that gospel message opened the door and closed the door, opened to those who are believing and closed it to those that would not and reject Christ. We also understood in this passage that Jesus has given these keys, the gospel message, to the church for the sake of binding and loosing. And with trepidation and serious sobriety, we understand that we have been entrusted with the gospel message and that only the church has the authority to affirm those who believe the gospel by both word, what they say, and deed, what they do. And thus, as we call one another to live in light of the gospel, we recognize that we are stewarding its message. And that it is an integrity, a gospel of integrity. You can't just say this and live a different way. So we understood that the, the church itself has the authority to show this. And it's a sobering responsibility. But the wonderful joy as well, as we steward and hold the gospel whole, is that Jesus Christ maintains and gets more glory through his church. Then in the first two weeks of February, uh, we talked about the significance of the Lord's Supper, about communion, learning that it is the ongoing sign of, and meal of the new covenant, and then also learning those four things, that it reminds us of Christ's sacrifice, that it proclaims his death till he comes, that it nourishes his church, and that it also marks off the true church from the world. And now we come to the final sermon in the series. After looking at the gospel and understanding all that it does for us, after seeing that it makes us into a corporate people, a body of Christ, and seeing that the way the body of Christ acts is important, according to his word, we should rightly ask Jake's question, and then what? What do we do with this thing? What's, what's it supposed to do? What does this thing do? The gospel makes us into a beautiful thing. That's a weird way to say it, but go with me for a minute. It's an incredible work of God to build his church. I mean, we don't start out like, like the model car kit, all perfectly painted and beautiful and numbered and sequenced so that we can just follow every direction and make it fit together perfectly. The church starts out with sinful rebels that want to do harm to the other pieces, not good. And in fact, they don't want to be handled by the creator and redeemer. They want to do their own thing. All the pieces of the body of Christ start out hating their maker. They are in rebellion against him. And yet, he takes those wicked rebels, redeems them, and he places them together in the body of Christ. Those pieces that he has rescued to make them into something beautiful called the church. I mean, that'll preach. I mean, I could really ride that whole analogy hard. I think it's really fun but I just want to say this. The Lord did not make 
the church like a model car. He did not do that. You may have heard the analogy, and it's a good one, that Christians are often trophies of his grace. An idea that like when a person is saved from sin and darkness and total rejection of God, when God does that and saves that individual and makes him his own, that person, there's only one explanation, it's that it's God's grace. And they become a living trophy of God's grace. And that's true. I think that's a helpful thing to say, look at what God did. But these trophies aren't made to sit on the shelf. They're not like the ones that kind of sit behind the glass. You know, you've probably walked down a high school hall where you have lockers and you have bunches of glass things where it's filled with all these different trophies of years gone by, of basketball teams no one's ever heard of anymore. It's not supposed to be like that, where they just sit behind the glass and no one looks at them or touches them. That's not what the church is supposed to be like. The church is not a model car, but a living, breathing body of Christ with marching orders, with a commission. Now, I I don't want to miss this. The church has been created, like all other things, for the ultimate glory of God. And we give a hearty amen to that, that that is for his glory to receive. And if he wanted to make it a model only, he certainly could. And we'd be just totally fine with that. But it doesn't. That's not what he does. He actually has a further purpose. He chooses to get glory through a working, going, doing church. Jesus has told us that he will build his church and that we are to play a part in his work. For our time and place, if I can say it this way, we have a job to do. We've been commissioned to do this work. I was earlier talking to Isaac, who uh, just recently entered the Navy in the last couple of years, and he said, man, to understand that now I was commissioned as an officer meant my whole life changed, and I had to do these things that the Navy told me to do, and I was set on a whole mission. Think about this, but he said, interestingly, he said, that was like a small C commission. He's like, you're talking about like a big C, like it's everything. Like this is the commission, not just from the Navy, but an all-powerful authority. God himself has commissioned his church to do this. I think that's right. The church is supposed to do something, but what is it? Easily. The church is supposed to make disciples. You want to get right all the way down to it. Now that's a heavy, heavy commission, but the church is to make disciples. After Jesus rises from the grave and before he ascends to the right hand of the Father, he communicates these marching orders or this commission to his 11 disciples, to those who would proclaim Christ to the world and who would begin the work of making disciples of all nations. Let's look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Verse 16, Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, just to be honest here, Many of you, when we started reading Matthew 28, just kind of glazed over. You kind of know the context. You've heard it before. And it's, I'm, not, I'm not judging you because I have the same idea. I know what Matthew 28 is about. It's the Great Commission. It's the missionary passage that we always turn to. We, we know that. That's good. But I want to just take a minute and, and, and help us think that this is not just here to do Missionary Sunday. In fact, we're trying to understand that this is the commission he gives to the church, the everyday church, that this is to help us understand our marching orders. This is not just a passage for Jared and Sharon Kessner 
or for Jonathan and Sarah Farmer, our missionaries in Indonesia. It's not just the, the one verse that kind of connects us to that purpose so we make sure we give money to them. This passage is for us. It's for us to understand what we are to be doing right now in our context in Virginia Beach in 2020. If you look back in verse 10, Jesus tells the two Marys who come to go back and tell the disciples to meet him at Galilee. So here we are in verse 16 now, and the disciples have gone to Galilee, and sure enough, they meet Jesus and worship him, and some doubted. Now, I'll just take a little aside because he kind of does the little side. I love this little statement, some doubted. Uh, these disciples were no super Christians. Let's just be honest. Even though they had followed him closely, they had eaten from his miraculous bread-breaking power, they'd seen him do incredible things, they had heard uh, Peter's exclamation that he is the Messiah, here they are still like the man in Mark 9 who says, help my unbelief. Still, in the midst of this, they worshiped him and some doubted. Like, I don't know what's going on here. Anyway, they meet Jesus and they tell him this, or he tells them this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The Son of Man, that's Jesus, the Son of Man has defeated sin and death. He has risen from the grave, and now he has been given all authority, both in heaven and on earth. This is what Daniel prophesied back in chapter 7 of Daniel. I'm going to read two verses, Daniel 7, 13, and 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, as we look at what Jesus is saying to the disciples in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the, the Great Commission, we have to realize he's claiming to be the Son of Man that Daniel talked about here. What he is doing is he is saying, I'm the one who has authority. I'm the one that now can gather all people from all nations into the everlasting kingdom. If you look a few pages back in Matthew 26, 64, this is before his crucifixion. Jesus, again, he's getting led there, tells the high priest that this is about to happen. This is what he says in uh, Matthew 26, 64. I tell you, for now, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is dropping like notes that this is going to happen. That's what he's talking about. And now his commission is so clear. He's saying all that authority has been given to me. He's saying that he's fulfilled all that he came to do and that now he has full authoritative dominion that cannot be thwarted. He is the king. No one else. If you, are, uh, you and I are understanding this right, though, like just think about the story for a minute. This is happening along the way. At this point, when he says all authority, like son of man, like Daniel's seven languages coming true in me, like we're thinking the next chapter to write here is like global domination to come into his kingdom by force. Like, you know, you would think that that's what's going to happen. Uh, he has many, though, to, to think this through, that he has a, too many, excuse me, he thinks this through differently than we would. He is saying that this is not just world domination. He has all authority to do so. We'd expect him to rise up and kind of be some all-powerful wizard that would make everyone by force come into his kingdom. But that's not what he does. 
His way is different. He has many that are still to be brought into his kingdom. And he knows that that has to be by faith. And it is with this authority, this fulfillment of prophecy, that we watch Jesus not just do the work alone by himself. Get this. At this point, he turns to the disciples to tell them, you are part of this. You are now going to be commissioned to do the work of what I have come to do. He turns to them and says, you are going to do the work of bringing worshipers into the kingdom of heaven. In verse 19, after telling them that all authority has been given to him, he tells them, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Wow. A few things here. As we go through the next couple of verses, I want to look at five things that will help us understand how Matthew is presenting Jesus and what Jesus is telling his disciples. The nature of that, all it's supposed to look like. The first thing, when we look at the verbs Jesus uses here, often in English we see the first two as imperatives or commands, right? We think, go and make disciples. And then we see the second two, baptizing, teaching, kind of as participles, things that kind of follow that with. That's not what's happening in in Greek. Certainly we have to go if we're going to make disciples of all nations. But the only imperative on these four verbs is make disciples. And in fact, it's not two words, it's just one. In English, it helps us to, to understand what he's saying here. But he is saying, you make disciples. You disciple the nations. You have to understand that it's not just those two words, but he's actually saying disciple as a way to make those like Christ. Like, Take those who are God-haters, those that hate God in every way, to those who love and follow and worship Jesus Christ. In other words, make them Jesus followers or disciples. So that's the first idea here. The main thrust of this passage, the command that he is giving, is not just to go. And that's fine. We should go as well. But it's more almost like, while going, make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. We'll get to that in a moment. The second thing, though, Notice that this is the first time that Jesus is telling his disciples to go outside of Israel to make disciples of all nations. Now, if we've looked at his ministry before, like back in Matthew 10, 5 through 6, Matthew writes this, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In the New Covenant, We have a call to the nations that is explicit and purposeful. Jesus is now sending them into the nations, the Gentiles. He's not only proclaiming the kingdom, as just proclamation in general, but now he is sending those who know the king personally, his disciples, the citizens of that kingdom, to make other citizens or make other disciples, not just Israel. And if you you catch this, then the promises of Abraham or to Abraham, are now coming true. We know the promises that were made to Abraham, that he would be blessed all the way back in Genesis 12. But at the, in Genesis 12, 3, he makes even a larger commitment to the whole world. He says that through Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Where did Jesus come from? Did he not come through the line of Abraham? We're talking about that now we are seeing it come to fruition, that through Jesus Christ, Abraham would be a blessing to the whole world. But there's more than that. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The third thing we need to notice here is that Jesus tells them not to be baptized like John the Baptist was doing. This is not just a baptism of repentance, as good as that was. Something new has happened. 
more revelation. This is a baptism of association and commitment, explicit in its nature. He tells them to baptize those disciples in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we know those, we know those words. We've said that before. You know, we kind of hear it here you know, every time we think about baptism or read this. But consider that this guy, Jesus, think about really being there for a moment. This guy, Jesus, he, you know, they've walked with him. They know he's a carpenter. They, they've, they've fished with him. He's done all these normal, regular things. Are, he's a real guy in the real neighborhood. Jesus is claiming to be the second person of the Trinity. He is saying, when you baptize someone, I'm I'm included in that. Father, Son, me, and the Holy Spirit. This is a new association. This is a commitment to Jesus of Nazareth as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus' followers, though, as the nature of baptism goes, cannot be disciples. They cannot be true disciples without declaring their allegiance to their king. And in baptism, baptism, that's exactly what's going on. It's not enough to have Jesus alongside of the many other gods that are out there that you could possibly have. He must be alone, baptized into him. Now, in our context, let's be honest, not a lot of us have statues that we worship at home. That's not a big issue. If if it is, let's talk later on. Um, We don't have a lot of those, per se, that we see. That is not to say that we don't have many other gods that vie for our attention and our loyalty. For many coming to Christ, and for those who are in Christ, maybe for a time, the God of materialism is a very strong pull. The, the God of pleasure and the things that are most enjoyable for us in our, our time period and our time frame and lifestyle. Or maybe it's the God of success that we worship. Or perhaps it's more subtle, it's the God of control over my life. Or maybe it's the God of security and comfort, the thing that I actually am most concerned about and not pleasing and trusting God altogether. When Jesus Christ talks about baptism into the Holy Trinity, he's talking about being baptized into the name of this triune God and a call that's completely committed to him as Lord and God of all. Him and him alone, no other gods. But there's more. Let me read verse 19 and 20 again. Though therefore, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The fourth thing is this. Jesus is not asking his disciples to go out and strictly teach doctrinal classes to new believers. That's not what's going on. Although that's a good thing to do. We'd want to teach good doctrine. He says, rather, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, now what does that mean? I mean, in these marching orders that he gives, Jesus calls the disciples not only to learn all the stuff that they need to know, all the doctrine. He calls them to observe, or maybe a better way is to keep, or to persist in obedience the commands that Christ has given his disciples. In other words, we must teach good doctrine. Absolutely. It's essential. We must teach what Jesus taught. We must understand what Jesus means and how he delivers that truth, and then we should deliver that truth also to the next generation of disciples. But, I think if we're honest, we think that this is some sort of task like delivering intellectual property. Like, okay, we're going to give you this stuff. you got to know. you got to hold all this. Make sure that you believe all this stuff. This is the really important stuff. you got to believe it. you got to understand it so you can kind of repeat it and get it right on the Jesus test. Like, that's kind of how somehow we think about that once in a while that way. And this is good. We need to be doing those things. But that's not exactly what Jesus is saying here. 
He uses these action verbs. He says that disciples ought to be taught to act, to do, to obey, to observe the things that Christ commanded. The teaching isn't so much like, uh, like school teaching. It's far more like an apprentice coming along, needing to learn the trade of his master, understanding that he wants to be like his master in every way, to do the things, of course, that his master tells him, but almost to be able to anticipate and understand the master's heart and why he would do those things, understand what he values, understand the way that he thinks so that he might also think that way. This is the process of discipleship that Jesus is talking about. It isn't like me, Chris Lowndes, it isn't me operating in a way that understands so well the doctrine that I can articulate the things of God to another person. No, it's more like Chris Lowndes becoming a different person altogether, whose desires, whose loves, whose attentions and and, and desires altogether are completely God-focused and understand him as my Father and my Lord. I need to be taught to do all the, and obey all the commands that Christ has given to me. I need to start thinking like he does. I need to act like him. And I need to value or treasure the things that he treasures. In short, I need to become a different person that is mature in Christ. The process of making someone a disciple, our commission, right? The process of making someone a disciple hasn't happened if a person doesn't live according to Jesus' commands. Think about that. You can have all the right doctrine. You can know all the Jesus stuff. They can tell you the gospel even. They could even be able to explain substitutionary atonement. But if they don't believe and then do and obey the commands of Christ, there's a question mark as whether they're actually disciples. Now, that's not to be like freaking us out and and getting afraid of our salvation if it's been lost, if we ever disobey. We recognize that when we sin, we have a great mediator. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. We recognize that what marks a believer is repentance and faith. So we're not talking about a sinless, perfect life in that regard. What we're saying here is if someone continually does not do what Christ commands, There ought to be a question mark there for us if they're actually even a disciple at all. Christ's disciples are those who obey the commands of Jesus with joy. They understand. And if you haven't put the pieces together here yet, we're talking about being whole or mature or complete in Jesus Christ. What we're saying is that our actions have to match our words. Our insides need to match our outsides that our doctrine matches up the things that we do. Uh, Jesus is calling his disciples to make disciples who are mature in Christ. This is not a two-year discipleship program. Oh, that's fine and good for us to do. It is a lifelong process of us trying to understand who we are and then living accordingly as part of the body of Christ, understanding the gospel and completely having ourselves completely made new in Christ. The task is what we're called to here, uh, to, to a lifelong process of discipleship. But there's one more thing that we need to see from Matthew 28 that's so helpful for us. This process of becoming a disciple is not done by the collective power and wisdom of all of us, Cornerstone Bible Church, or any other church for that matter. We've got an, an, enough people together to form a quorum, and then we can have the collective power to make some good decisions here and do our best to make more people that are like Christ. 
It is done through the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not left alone. In verse 20, he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The fifth thing we need to notice is that Christ will be with us as we make disciples. At the beginning of Matthew's account of Jesus, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 23, at the end of that genealogy, remember this, it becomes clear that God has come to dwell with his people. We think of it as a Christmas term, but Emmanuel, God is with us. But he doesn't leave us. As the church is birthed, the Spirit of God comes to indwell his saints. I mean, what a comfort to the scared and overwhelmed disciples, right? I mean, can you imagine, like, the guy that you were like, okay, this might be the Messiah, this might be the Messiah. Uh, Peter claims he is the Messiah. Jesus says, yes, I'm the Messiah. And then he dies. Oh, my goodness, you're, you're shattered. But then he raises again. Oh, my goodness, this is, this is the real deal. He's the Messiah. And then he says, I'm going away. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Really, Jesus? But he makes this claim to remind us. He says, I am with you always. Comforting words, I am with you always. This is great comfort, but this isn't necessarily the point that Jesus is trying to make. It's certainly true that we are comforted by this comfort who's coming, the Spirit. He's not only comforting the disciples, though. He is equipping them. He is giving something that they must have. Remember that this is a commission marching orders for us, the church. He has just told them to go make disciples of all nations. That is a lofty and, just to be honest, impossible task. But he undergirds it by saying, I will be with you always. With this statement and this truth, he is empowering them with his presence. The presence that is needed to do all that it takes to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Guys, this is not our mission. It's not Cornerstone's mission. It's not like a bunch of humans that came up with this mission to have more people in the church. It is his mission. It is his way. And he will accomplish all that he sets out to do. The process of making disciples is impossible without the grace and power of God. Only God can open blind eyes. Only God can take dead people and make them alive. Only God can take those rebellious people who are in Christ and grow them up into the image of Jesus Christ. That is only ever done by the grace and power of God. And we say glory to that. We glory in this truth and hold tightly to him as the power of our discipleship and evangelism. Now, we began this morning kind of starting out to ask the question, what is the church supposed to do? Talk about Jake and how that he asks that question. What's supposed to happen with all this stuff? We know that the gospel makes us into corporate people. We get that. The church, the body of Christ. And we know that this means that we're supposed to act and live uh, as Christ tells us to live in a way that actually helps us understand who he is and then proclaims that truth to the world. But we're also recognizing that that model car is not supposed to just sit behind the glass. It's meant to do something. What's the church supposed to do? We answered it simply Make disciples. Matthew 28, he says, make disciples of all nations. This is our commission as a church. But from what we see in Jesus' words, it's important to realize that the Great Commission isn't just about missionary work. It is. It certainly is about missionary work. But I think we have a certain stigma or understanding or 
maybe misunderstanding of what we mean when we say missionary work. Let me explain. When we talk about missionary work, we often mean that we are looking to do all that we can to cross physical and cultural boundaries to speak the truth of Jesus Christ to others who have not heard. And that's good, and we should do that, and we do that. We think it's right that we would do this as far as Indonesia and our backyard across the United States. We want to do this. But the task that Jesus gave us in Matthew 28 is far more than just that. It's far more engaging than just missionary endeavors across different contexts. Jesus is giving us the task of making disciples of all nations. He is not, I want you to hear this, he is not saying make converts of all nations. What, is, um, what are Jared and, and, uh, and Jonathan doing? I talked to them the other day. We'll, we'll, we'll talk to them hopefully in this coming members meeting. But one of the things that's so different for what they understand their mission to be is to make disciples. A lot of people will go in and hold big evangelistic tents and get a lot of people to, to name the name of Christ and a lot of converts were made. That's good. And they're not made disciples at all. What Jared and, and Jonathan understand that they must do is for the long haul. Understanding it's the depth of making that person a new person in Jesus Christ can only be done by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the commitment is not to making converts. The commitment is to making disciples. Because guess what a disciple does? He also makes disciples. It's not about making converts alone. It's not about truncating our idea of missions, but understanding the absolute depth, depth of true Christian discipleship. This is what Jesus is saying. And he's not telling them, go tell them all your doctrines so that they can, again, spit it back out. He says you are to make disciples by my definition, Jesus is saying that. He's saying, by my definition, make them disciples, followers. Be about the task of making Christ followers. Those who understand that Christianity isn't about knowing and mentally believing doctrine, but about trusting Christ, obeying, repenting of sin, obeying all that Christ has commanded to the point that they would be mature or whole or complete or perfect in Christ. Now, you know where I'm going with this. Our whole understanding about evangelism, about discipleship, ought to actually ring true to something that Paul has already told us. And we know it a lot about here, around here at Cornerstone because we know Colossians 1, 28, and 29 are really our mission or purpose verses, those things that help us understand our calling. It brings us back to understand what Paul understood. And if you know anything about the New Testament, we can all be agreed that Paul knew, he knew a little bit about being a disciple maker to all nations, to all the Gentiles. I'm going to pick up here in Colossians 1. Paul's talking about his ministry to the church. And he's explaining his task. I'll start in verse 27 because I want you to hear the word Gentile, thinking about all nations. Here he says, To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we jump to the, thing, the verses we know, but hear them in this context. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. I mean, what a beautiful restatement of the Great Commission. Paul knows a thing or two about what Jesus is saying. 
He understands what his whole job is to do is what he says, Matthew 28 says, what Jesus told his disciples to do. It's a message, a proclamation to everyone, all nations, Gentiles. It's to the end that these disciples would be made mature in Christ, that they would be true disciples. Paul understands that it's all this that's happening because of the energy that is powerfully being worked in him by the empowering presence of God. Remember, behold, I am with you always. Paul gets it. He understands that it's actually the Lord who is doing this. Think, hear this again in light of that, right? For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul understands what he's doing, and he's helping us understand that when we say make disciples, we're talking about the long, long picture. Understanding all that that means. Understanding all nations means even in this room. It even means the people who are back past a few of those walls over there. Those who are in our lives. Those who are in our neighborhoods. Those who are in our extended families. And just this is kind of strange that everyone even includes myself. Like, I, I didn't, like, graduate from the, the school of Jesus discipleship, and now I can just teach it the whole time. I'm actually continuing to be made like Jesus Christ. You are continually being made like Jesus Christ. So to grow up in Christ is even to follow what he is telling us to do. When we talk about making disciples, the purpose for our church, not just our church, the church, we recognize we're saying evangelism with fervency, loving to proclaim the gospel to our neighbors, to our families, to our coworkers, to those in our backyards here in Chesapeake and Virginia Beach and Norfolk, across the state, across the United States, and across the world. That must happen. You can't make everyone mature in Christ unless you go and make everyone mature in Christ. And so we are most certainly call, and recognizing this is a missionary call. But it is not limited to missions only. It is rather the full understanding that discipleship in Jesus Christ is for all men to be made perfect in Christ Jesus. We need to have a right understanding of the goal here. Not just that we would be involved in more missions, but we definitely need to be. We, we realize this and we need to push out in all of these ways. But we recognize and agree with Jared and, and Jonathan as they train and work and pray that true disciples would be made in the Real Malayu people in Indonesia and across the world. So we take our calling seriously to be missionaries here, to be disciplers here, to follow Jesus and be observers of everything that he taught his disciples to do, and then therefore to make more disciples. The end of that discipleship is not that they're converts or not that they sit in these chairs, but rather that they also understand that they are to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Making disciples, again, in one sense, has no boundaries. It's the task of proclaiming Christ so that all people might be made perfect, mature, in Christ. So, church, let us be about this mission. Let us follow and obey so that we might bring honor and glory to the one who gave us this great commission. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, all praise be to Jesus Christ. Lord, there is none like you. We worship today. We want to worship in spirit and in truth. We ask that you continue to make us worshipers that look like you. Lord, we proclaim to the world this gospel, the good news that they too can know salvation because 
of the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ. We thank you for your love. And I pray that you would help us to be serious about what it means to make disciples. We love you. We desire to grow. We desire to be made whole and mature in you. And we ask your grace. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for you always being with us. Lord, as a great comfort, we thank you for equipping us for the task. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.